Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that Padraig Tuma and I started 10 by 9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast. And you also know how much we love it. On June 15th, I was delighted to host a special collaboration with Ulster University and its LGBT staff network on the theme Belonging. There are three fantastic stories on this podcast for you from that event. Will you please lick the icing off that donut? Go on. Yes, that's the way. Make sure you get all of it. The sprinkles too. The first we knew of what happened was a phone call from home. Obviously panicked, worrying, were we okay? We looked to the TV, we sat around the TV thinking, what an awful tragic accident. There was no mistake to be made here about any beauty. <laughs> Boy, this is an ugly lot. So let's get started and all our storytellers with the 10 by 9 mic for the very first time. First up in this podcast with her belonging story, here's Willa Murphy. When I was 16, my family moved from Boston to Utah, from the Irish Catholic world of Kennedy's and convent schools to the Mormon Mecca out west. The place we moved to was known as the Happy Valley. Remember the Osmonds? They have their own street in this town called Osmond Lane. White teeth and white skin abound. It's the only place outside of Northern Ireland where a mixed marriage means two white people. <laughs> a Mormon and a non-Mormon, or a Mormon and a Gentile, as all non-Mormons are known. So there I was, a Gentile in a strange new world. Strange not only because of the evangelical atmosphere, but because I was a New England girl airdropped into the Wild West. The leafy avenues and dry stone walls that had been my world were left behind, and in their place a vast desert and fantastic shapes of red sandstone, where you might meet a rattlesnake or a bobcat or trip over a dinosaur bone. It was like another planet, something unfinished, still in the process of being created. In the early days of my new life here, the girl across the road invited me to the local youth group, where Mormons would learn how to dance with the width of a Book of Mormon between them. Where they would enjoy ice cream socials to cool their libidos. <laughs> where they would receive talks on temperance and modesty and chastity. It was all a bit like Ireland in the 1950s, <laughs> but with less rain and better teeth. <laughs> this evening, there was a rumor going around the neighborhood that mountains of free donuts would be part of the proceedings the promise of something sweet after a force feeding of doctrinal bitters. In that long tradition of using sugar and fat to lure children into a darkly adult world. <laughs> Part of me worried uh, that these donuts could be a conversion trap. I had learned already that the almost unbearable friendliness and rictus smiles of the locals were the first steps to proselytizing. And folks in the neighborhood knew there was fresh Gentile meat on West Ridge <laughs> on the avenue. But I did like a good donut. So I decided to take a chance that the evening wouldn't spiral into a baptism by immersion in blue Kool-Aid. We arrived to a hall packed to the rafters with blonde hair and flashing teeth. On the stage stands a small table, 
On the table, a white plate. On the plate, a single glazed and iced donut, atop an elaborate lacework doily. The donut is pink with rainbow sprinkles. A card in front of the plate warns, do not touch. Stage left, a large black trash can. It could almost be a set for a Beckett play. A box of donuts, a box of donuts is a social event. A lone donut on a stage is a different kettle of fish. <laughs> the girls in my row speculate about what the evening holds. A talk by a policeman, perhaps? An obesity seminar? A prize for the winner of the scripture chase? So, there we are, 300 plus hormone steep teens squeezed onto bleachers, girls on the right, boys on the left, the room jangles with voluble adolescence, all shouting at once as if from competing mountaintops. A balding man in a suit strides purposefully onto the stage, shushing and silence from the young people who know to defer to a man in a suit. This one looks like he could be a CIA agent or a corporate banker, but in fact, this is their bishop. He stands wordless for several moments, allowing solemnity to gather in the room. Brothers and sisters, he begins, we're going to talk about something very special tonight. I hope you will remember this night for the rest of your lives. I had already learned that special was a favorite word in Utah and meant something completely different than it does in these islands. Used almost as often as we is used in Ulster. It could describe everything from God's grace to a tuna casserole. <laughs> Revelation was special, but so was bowling going shoe shopping, or eating tacos. The word is not so much spoken as sung, made up of rising and falling notes, the last one held for several counts. Special, <laughs> or so special. <laughs> so back to our bishop, he had his special tone of voice on to talk to us about something special. Brothers and sisters, I need two volunteers to help me out tonight, a nice young lady and a young man, anyone? Yes, you, sister? Come on down to the frontier. What's your name? Molly, Molly Mormon, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, join us here at the front. Your name, Norman, Norman Mormon. <laughs> now, Molly, would you please pick up that donut? Hold it up for everyone to see. Brothers and sisters, how would you describe this donut from the crowd? Sweet, pink, it has a big hole, it's a ring, it's messy. You need to wash your hands after it makes you fat. Yes, all great comments. Okay, now Molly, I want you to give that donut to Norman. Go ahead now, she does. Now, Norman. Will you please lick the icing off that donut, please? He does. Go on. Yes, that's the way. Make sure you get all of it. The sprinkles, too. I think you missed a bit there in the middle. Keep licking. You can use your teeth if you like. Wonderful. Okay, now, I want you to hand that donut back to Molly. Molly cautiously receives the defiled donut, glazed now with saliva, partially collapsed, and pocked with gnaw marks from Norman's incisors. She holds it as far from her person as her arms will allow, the way one would carry a bag of dog dirt, or the way justice holds the scales up and away. 
Molly looks like she wishes she too were blindfolded right now. Now, Molly, I want you to see if any boy in this room is willing to eat that donut. Go on now, go up the aisle, offer it. Does anyone want it? A squall of groans and retching sounds from the boy's side of the hall. Sisters, I want you to remember this moment. No one wants a used donut. Even Norman doesn't want to finish eating that donut now. In fact, no one even wants to look at it. Molly, could you please dispose of that thing in the trash where it belongs? She solemnly dumps the donut into the black bin. Sisters, you belong to Heavenly Father, and he decrees that one day you will belong to your husband. I say unto you again, no man wants a used donut. And I have a handy way for you to remember this, because hiding in the word donut is the word don't. <laughs> don't take it out of the box. Don't touch it. Don't give it away. The bishop is bulging with pride at his mnemonic device. <laughs> Sisters, it is so easy to stumble and slide into the pit of transgression. I plead with you to stand safely back from the cliff of sin over which it is so easy to fall. If you fall, you belong in outer darkness. In outer darkness, you will be neither male nor female, but more like a dog that's been fixed or a spayed cat. To be neutered is to be not one thing or the other, but lukewarm. And what does God do with lukewarm things? He spews them out of his mouth. If there's anything that keeps me on the straight and narrow, it's the thought of being a neuter for all eternity. If you are careful, the donut is an eternal circle of God's love. If you slide, it is a wheel of misfortune, a black hole of lust, a road to ruin, a portal to impurity, a void, an abyss. The metaphors sound like someone dropped a Bible and a Book of Mormon into a pulsing bullet. <laughs> the bishop has finished his parable. The donut lay half-eaten in the bin, groaning under the weight of allegory. Never before had the fried Dutch cake been freighted with such meaning and import. Some of the girls in the audience are crying. They are growing in the knowledge that in the Happy Valley, tears are the only acceptable bodily fluid. <laughs> Molly stands, looking stunned and sick, waiting to be told she can return to her seat, or perhaps hoping that the earth will crack open so she can slide quietly into the abyss. Brother Norman looks bashful and still rather hungry, as though in the darkness of his closet he might well have finished devouring that donut. How brilliant and yet slightly disturbing was that, Willa? I'll never look at a donut in the same way again, but thank you so much. And if you have a story for 10 by 9 then get in touch through the submissions page on our website, which is 10x9.com. We are always, always looking for storytellers. Or you can contact us through our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, next up, here's Paul McCormick. Okay, so for those of us of a certain age, and let's be kind, I'm talking about myself here as well, so we'll say over 25s. <laughs> I'd say a lot of us will remember the morning of September 11th. It was a tragedy that sent shockwaves across the world. It's an event that people, I said, of, of, of our age will remember. Remember where you were, who were you with, and remember the witnessing the tragic attacks that happened in New York. 
Now, if I was to ask the same people, if you remember where you were the night before, September 11th and September the 10th evening, I'd imagine a lot of people won't remember unless you had something pretty special on that evening. For me, it's very easy to remember. I was on a stage, um, on a stage in a New York bar with a group of people singing Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive. <laughs> You'll be glad to know that I won't be repeating the singing here tonight. Um, so I was there in New York for a placement year for, so placement year for university, Ulster University, of course. There was 14 of us in total, then went across to Newark International Airport. We were mainly working for Aer Lingus in their um, ground staff, so in the check-in, arrival, that sort of thing, but we also worked for other airlines. Um, so I come from a very rural part of Northern Ireland, the Glenelly Valley, high up in the Spurn Mountains. So for me, it was a very big step to move away from home and to move to New York at the young age of 20. I didn't know anybody else in the group that I was going away with. And I had a very secure sense of belonging that was rooted in this place, home and family. I did move away from home for university, but like most country students, I was running down the road every Friday evening for the good dinners and the free laundry service. So it was pretty much a home bird, and it was a big step to move away. So let me tell you a bit about the 14ers that went away. So there was people from every county in Northern Ireland. We had country folk like myself, and we also had city folk from Belfast and Derry, and we also had a good mix of Protestants and Catholics. We were living in a hotel for the first two weeks that we were there. There were six of us living in, in my room, so we were living and working together in very close proximity. There was one girl, Linda, phoned home every day and proceeded to cry then every night that she was homesick despite having the time of her life, and was no way homesick whatsoever. It was my birthday in those first two weeks that I was there. My birthday is the 12th of July. <laughs> this actually proved to be a great opportunity for us to discuss our identity, our nationality, and what we're about, and of course, have a few arguments. So some people there that night were celebrating my birthday, some people were celebrating the 12th, but we all were celebrating that experience of being together and, um, and enjoying that experience. We were total tourists in those first few months. Um, myself and Richard were the first to go up the World Trade Center. We spent about two hours just looking over at the, at the city. It was nothing like we'd ever seen before. And we went back and told the rest of the group that it was a must-do activity that you have to do as part of um, the, your New York experience. So that was about mid-August, and the rest of the group then started to follow us in the weeks that, that followed. So I lived in, uh, so worked in the, the airport, Newark International Airport. So we lived in the town of Newark. Newark was five minutes from the airport and 10 minutes from Manhattan. Newark has a very high, had a very high unemployment and a very high crime rate. It is widely regarded as one of the most dangerous cities in the United States. I spoke to my cousin, uh, my mum's cousin, who lives in upstate New York, and I told her that I was moving to New York, Newark she was horrified and pleaded with me come and live with herself. To give you an example of, of what Newark was like in, in terms of the danger, we were out clubbing in New York one night and um, I had one perhaps drink too many and decided it was time to go home and got a taxi home. It was rather vague, we'll say, and the next thing I remember was I was standing in downtown Newark and realised that I need to get out of this place very, very quickly.
20 odd years ago, there was no mobile phones. I didn't have any cash, bank cards, of course. And I seen a public telephone, so I walked across to it. There was only two numbers that I could think of. One of them was the office and work, and the other number, I thought, I can't phone that. But there's not going to be anybody in work, so I phoned the other number, 911, <laughs> and was asked, what's your emergency? I started to tell the, the operator that I was a 20-year-old kid stuck in downtown um, Newark, and she got quite cross. She's like, this is an emergency line only, and I, and I reiterated that as a 20-year-old Irish kid <laughs> stuck in downtown Newark. She's pretty much quickly replied, I'll send a car for you straight away. <laughs> the two cops that arrived, of course, were Irish Americans. <laughs> gave me the, the lightest telling off they probably could, and then decided to give me a tour of Newark and show me where I should go and where I shouldn't go, and of course find an Irish bar as well. <laughs> the area of the city that we lived in was known as the Ironbound. It was a, a largely Hispanic area. It was common for in the bars, restaurants, and even the, the likes of banks, for staff there not to even speak English, so it was all Portuguese. I suppose for that reason, we traveled a lot in packs, um, and we were commonly known as the Irish kids, so when we went into a bar, the Irish kids are common. Um, for that reason, I suppose we had that shared identity, and that common identity that, that um, we had. For some of us, that was probably easier to accept than others to be known as the Irish kids. So we're having a blast. It was an amazing time, but everything changed on the morning of September 11th. As you know, we were out the night before doing our karaoke. Unfortunately, that was quite a, a big night out as well as the, as the other night I described, which was good because we all had a lie on the next day. Not one of us or a group were up and away or, or out into the city. The first we knew of what happened was a phone call from home. Obviously panicked, worrying, were we okay? We all got up, we looked to the TV, we sat around the TV thinking, what an awful tragic accident. Then we know what happened next. The next plane hit and one of the guys actually fell off his chair with shock at what happened. We felt very close to the situation. We could see out our kitchen window the smoke starting to come up over the city but yet it didn't feel real. It felt like a, a really bad disaster movie. Those next few hours were very tense. There was a lot of panic telephone calls between, between ourselves, making sure everybody was okay, and panic calls from home. Of course, when you know what happens whenever when things like this disasters happen, the phone lines crashed. So for some people that couldn't get through to home, home couldn't get through to them, and they were much more panicked. I managed to speak to my cousin, Joni, who I mentioned. Joni's husband, Mike, was a firefighter. He was based downtown. She knew he would be there. She was in absolute panic, but knew that she would not know how he was for the next few hours and days. Mike survived. Unfortunately, many of his colleagues didn't, as we know. That night in New York, there was the most awful thunderstorm. It really felt like it was gonna be the end of the world. We were so close to New York, in the New York City, everything closed down. I suppose a bit like the pandemic that we know of now. Everything ceased, everything stopped. The airspace closed, and it closed for three days, which meant we had no, no work to go to. 
Whenever we returned to work, there were thousands of desperate people standing in front of us trying to get home. For ourselves, we were thinking the same thing. When can we get out of here? When can we get back home? But we knew we had a job to do, and our priority then was to get the people in front of us home. We had lots of families that we needed to get all around the world. In those early days, um, we heard some awful stories, and I'm not going to go into them all tonight here, but it was difficult, and it was a difficult time. It was a very tense atmosphere. Every one of us had an armed state trooper stand beside us as we checked in, and we were just the young Irish kids brought over from university. So back to the night before, and why were we singing Gloria Gaynor? So Gloria was actually a regular traveler with ourselves. Not that I realized that when I was checking her in. I didn't realize who she was, and I advised her that she needed to go away and collect her tickets from the ticket desk before I could proceed with it. I was pretty quickly removed from the, the um, primary service desk, first class. But Gloria's song, I Will Survive, did become the anthem of her year. In the weeks that followed, as I mentioned, there was a real strong desire to move home. Aer Lingus had closed down the operation that, that we, went out to work for, we went out to work there for them. So Aer Lingus closed down. We didn't have a job. We needed to look for other employment. There was obviously the pressure from family, wanted us to come home, come back to them. And there was also that fear that something else could happen again. But something was drawing us to stay together. And that was the strong bonds that we had built up in those days before 9-11. Us group were like a family. We cared for each other. We were there for each other in those good times, those birthday celebrations. And we were there for each other now in these bad times to support each other through those, said the, the difficult days of 9-11. We belonged to be there together. Oh, what a gorgeous story, Paul. Really special. Thank you so much. Tenbanine is always free, but if you'd like to support us, you can give via Patreon or PayPal, links at the website. We're so thankful to everyone who has. Or maybe you could give us a rating, takes a second, or a kindly review, takes maybe 20 seconds, wherever you get your podcasts. Patrick and I would love you forever. Mostly, though, we're just grateful to have you listening. Okay, our third and final story of belonging on this podcast comes from Liz McArdle. Just to let you know, Helms Bay is a beach popular with wild swimmers not far from Belfast. Here's Liz. When I was about six, it started. I had an imaginary friend, and the imaginary friend was called Mary, the Virgin Mary statue in Ballantraw Church in County Monaghan, where I hail from. She stood in the middle of the altar, serene and watchful. Her arms were always outstretched like this. Was she looking for a hug? (laughs) She wore blue and she had a sort of an ivory scarf on and she made me feel at peace. A sort of blue thing of beauty who I had a connection with. She would speak silently to me and I would look at her and think about the world. Well, really, I did most of the talking and she just listened. So similar to modern life for me. (laughs) 
so what does every imaginary friend need? Well, I don't really know, but this one needed flowers and an altar. So that's what I had to get. Age seven or eight, in my bedroom, there was a perfect space for a May altar with a beautiful circular mirror and some tiny cups from a kid's tea set that would hold a few wee wild flowers. It would be a triumph. May was known as a special month for Mary. So I collected flowers, I collected prayers and decorations, and I made my own May altar. There were definitely a few May altars, so either my attention to the religious calendars waned, or I just kept an altar going for many months. Or else it went on for a good few years. Either way, the bond was great, and the altars were even better. So anyway, I'm not sure whether an imaginary friend can be ditched, but... With time, the connection faded. It's not you, it's me. <laughs> With the thrills of teenage angst and excitement, thoughts of this owl pal were put away with other childish things. But the obsession to fit was to take an unexpected twist with a new siren center stage when I was aged about 14. We were visited by Sister Rosalyn. Not visited in the biblical sense, but actually, <laughs> she came to talk to our class about God. <laughs> Sister Rosalyn was the youngest nun you'd ever seen. Maybe she was only about 20, or maybe the good living is good for your skin also. <laughs> A most classic, beautiful face. And she told her story, and it was as though she was speaking directly to me. She was aged 14 or 15, just like me, and she was at home in her bedroom, looking out the window, thinking about the usual things for a teenage girl. And there was a beautiful moon, and she looked out the window, and she got the calling <laughs> to become a nun. She said it came out of the blue, it was totally unexpected, but this was definitely the calling and she had to respond. Well, I was totally there with her in this story, right up until the moment that she said she got the calling. I was petrified. <laughs> what if it was going to happen to me? <laughs> Just looking out the window at night? I was used to watching the headlights from passing cars on the ceiling of the bedroom, and I loved the rhythm of that. But this was a new threat. <laughs> with, with desperate times, calls for desperate measures, I needed some heavy curtains. <laughs> My seamstress mother knew the peril, and she saved me from a life in the nunnery by heavy curtains. <laughs> Now, those of you who know me will know how successful this strategy has been. And since then, I've avoided this calling. I have a healthy, robust atheism, and that has come through my anti-religion shield called the blackout blind. <laughs>
So, all the while I had been chasing to belong somewhere that wasn't mine. Chasing the beauty and the elusive blue of the Virgin Mary. It took me until COVID lockdown to know where I really belong, which is in the sea with a group of swimmers at Helen's Bay. There was no mistake to be made here about any beauty. <laughs> Boy, this is an ugly lot. We're a mashup of modern misfits thrown together. Even our name says it all. We are the Helen's Bay floaters. <laughs> it's a watery lot with mayhem and accidents and screams galore as we fall into the sea in a graceless, disheveled sort of a way. There's one who burned her gutties warming her feet on the fire. There's the one who can't swim but is in the swimming group. There's the one who drinks too much and the one who doesn't drink at all. There's the one who thinks too much and the one who doesn't think at all. There's the one who loses their 400 pound glasses in the sea the health and safety one, the one who screams extra when anything moves in the water, one who has a birthday cake for everybody, and then there's me. And now it's me who hold my arms open, just like my Mary once did, and say to these people, you belong here with me, you belong here with me. Liz, thanks so much and thanks for giving us the title for this podcast. I'm sure if the Virgin Mary was so minded, no blackout curtain could hold her back. What an hilarious story. And that is it for this podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com or via our website, which is 10by9.com. I love to hear from you. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes. And please, if you can, Tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It is the best way to get us noticed. Thanks to the lovely people at the Black Box, the wonderful people at Ulster University, Gail Neal, Steve McGuigan and Damien McElduff, who organised it all and could probably have organised the D-Day landings. Thanks too to our wonderful audience and all our storytellers, but especially Willa Murphy, Paul McCormick and Liz McArdle. I'm Paul Doran and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.